0: your own way in the seventh-seat Isuzu MUX. Visit your local Isuzu Ute dealer today. Mornings with Mark Duffield. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Toolkit Depot studio on a very wet and wintry day out here at Optus Stadium. Don't forget to shop winter at TKD. We've got a big show for you today, as always, brought to you by Isuzu Utes, and you can live your own way in the Isuzu D-MAX. We're going to talk to former Matilda and SEN commentator Jenna McCormack about the Women's World Cup. And, of course, a massive game for Australia coming up tomorrow night in Brisbane against Nigeria. We'll touch base with Tristan Lavalette. A massive fifth test coming up. Even though we've retained the Ashes, I suspect there are moral bragging rights on the line in the fifth test at the Oval. We will discuss that with Tristan Lavalette from ESPN Quick Info. How will Australia line up? Some interesting selection conundrums for them. We'll talk to Scott Sattler about Matters NRL later in the show and uh, got an interesting deep dive for you later today, thanks to Izuzu Utes. We're going to talk about AFL fixturing and whether there might be a new model in the pipeline that brings greater integrity to the AFL fixturing system. Uh, there's been a lot going on, of course, at the World Swimming Titles in Fukuoka, Japan. In Japan, Australia had their biggest ever single night at a World Championship with four gold medals on Sunday. Of course, the, uh, the fourth test at Old Trafford got rained out and finished in a draw, I think. Pretty sure I heard... English commentators moaning and groaning about something in the background over the past few days. Hopefully that stops with the start of the fifth test. Um, So I want to make these points, thanks to Izuzu Utes, about that test. Here are four points to four-wheel drive you to work. Point one, this is not a dead rubber. Not only does England have the chance to tie the series... Not only does Australia have the chance to decisively win the Series 3-1, but because of the constant whining from England when things haven't gone their way in this series, there is a significant moral victory to be had by one of the two teams in this test match. The Palms have clearly invented a new scoring mechanism in cricket which hasn't officially come into effect yet because they keep on talking like they are ahead when they're actually behind. The Aussies won the first two tests fair and square. England won the third test fair and square. Rain denied them in the fourth. That makes the scoreline 2-1. The Ashes might have already been reclaimed, but this is anything but a dead rubber. Point two, it sounds like David Warner is going to play again. I'm fascinated by the mindset of this Australian team when it comes to Warner. He has been a great player, but he's 36. He's now reached 53 times in his last 29 innings. And the selectors have contorted their brains sufficiently on his selection in the team that they now give him a tick for performance when he makes 30-odd. Oh, he looked good. Oh, he took the attack to the English. Yep, and then he gets out. If we look at what our issue been, has been in the last two tests, it is the failure to make enough runs, which in turn has left the free-swinging English batting order wailing away at us without much pressure on them. The whole point of batting is to make runs, and Warner hasn't made many for a long time now. Point three, Todd Murphy has to play in this test. Leaving the spinner out of the fourth test meant the Aussies went away from a tried-and-true formula and, that has taken us to the World Test Championship. We always have a specialist spinner in the team. The omission of Murphy at Old Trafford reeked of a messed up mindset that we just had to bat for long enough to escape with a draw, which in turn helped England get on the front foot and attack us whenever play was possible in between the rain showers at Old Trafford. Time to get back to a formula that serves us best. And point four... As part of that formula, we play one all rounder, just one. That means if Mitchell Marsh isn't fit enough to bowl in this game, then Cameron Green has to play. Our bowlers are tired. There's even talk that Michael Nessa or Sean Abbott might be pulled into the team to give us one fresh body. What that tells you is that Pat Cummins is. uh, What that tells you is Pat Cummins needs to freshen up and Green or someone needs to bowl some overs. If if Marsh can't bowl, the selectors have a decision to make on whether he can play as a specialist batsman. Does his form warrant that? There's an argument to suggest it does, and that brings us back to the earlier point about Warner. The notion that Green could be left out for lack of form while Warner continues to play because of whatever form he's shown... That's uh, pretty amazing. And the other thought that they will continue to play Warner because they don't want to disrupt the batting order while completely overhauling the bowling attack tells you the match committee on this Ashes trip stopped thinking clearly and probably stopped thinking clearly about two tests ago. We'll be talking about cricket to Tristan Lavalette later in the show. Get his thoughts on this test match. But what do you think? You can have your say on the temper at bedshed text line on 0487 736 736. Or you can give us a call on the open line on 13 12 55. On to our two football teams. It's been a bleak old season in WA. Here are some footy thoughts. Thanks to Izuzu, and you can live your own way in the Izuzu D-Max Four points to four-wheel drive you to work this morning. Point one, the Eagles-North Melbourne clash this weekend at Optus Stadium highlights the problem of the AFL's fixture and its equalisation policies. This match features the two teams whose seasons have been so bad they desperately need a win, but they might be better off losing. If the Eagles find a way to beat North, their fans might love it for a week, but it would put them just one win away from overtaking the hapless Kangaroos on the AFL ladder, which might cost them the number one draft pick, which costs them access to Vic Country Gun, Harley Reid. That has the potential to affect them for the next 10 years. Point two, further to that first point, there is talk that the AFL will look at rejigging its current fixture to make it an 18-round fixture where you play everyone once and then your crosstown rival twice And then the competition splits into three lots of six. And the top six play for spots in the top four. The middle six play for spots in the top eight. And the bottom six play for draft picks. It eliminates the chances of clubs tanking. Is this a better system? I'm going to get to this in Duff's Deep Dive. Thanks to to Izuzu Uts later in the show. But what do you think? You can share your thoughts with us. Point three, further to the tanking point, there is a strong suggestion that North Melbourne will receive priority draft picks at the end of this season from the AFL. If the AFL does that, it will be making a decision looking backwards, not forwards. They'll be saying that North Melbourne has been bad for too long. Because if you look at North Melbourne's midfield, a midfield that includes Jai Simpkin, Luke Davies-Uniak, Will Phillips, Harry Sheezel, and George Wardlaw and you project three years forward, if you offer me that midfield in three years over what West Coast midfield might look like in three years' time, I'm taking North Melbourne's midfield every day of the week. Why should they be entitled to AFL assistance? I don't think West Coast should be, and I certainly don't think North Melbourne should be either. Point four, I sincerely hope Fremantle aren't about to park the bus this year and limp home over the past month and a half of what has been a very disappointing season. There is much to be gained in this last month and a half. There is also much to be lost, both individually and collectively at Fremantle. They've sent Sean Darcy and Nat Fyfe off for surgery. There are a number of other players at the Dockers who look like they're playing a bit sore, but they need to bear down hard and get something out of these last few games. Otherwise, they're going to start the season next year under a lot of pressure from the coach down. Give us your thoughts on a new fixture system on the Dockers, on whether North should get draft concessions. You can have your say on the Temper at Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736. You can call us on the open line on 13 12 55. This is Mornings with Mark Duffield on SENWA. As always, we are brought to you by IZU Utes, and you can live your own way in the IZUZU D-MAX. We are back with Jenna McCormack to talk Women's World Cup after the break.
1: Sado, has come out to the left flank here. Wins it. Head of her defender, Cho. Caicedo continues on her run, takes a shot, but oh, it's a fumble. Gets a howler from the goalkeeper, and Linda Caicedo has scored her first World Cup goal. The wonder kid from Colombia. A shot from the left side of the 18-yard box, across the face of goal with her right foot, and spilled by the goalkeeper Yun Young Gil, and into the back of the net. And in the 39th minute, it's Colombia two, South Korea nil.
0: Yes, Colombia beats South Korea, of course, last night. The Women's World Cup is in full swing, having a massive impact on the sporting landscape in Australia and New Zealand at the moment. And joining me on the show to talk about it is a person who was a star across two football codes. She played uh, soccer at a really high level and also had a couple of seasons in the AFLW for the Adelaide Crows. Jenna McCormick, welcome.
2: Good morning, Mark. How are you going?
0: I'm very well, thank you. What are you making of the World Cup so far?
2: Oh, isn't it just fantastic? We're seeing seats um, getting filled across the country, um, and of course, over in New Zealand, and we're seeing it all across the uh, all across the news and on the newspapers. So um, it's so far so good, and and really knew that um, when Australia and New Zealand were announced to host. This uh, tournament a couple of years ago really kind of just knew that we would provide such a entertaining and um, amazing environment for um, such a world-class event here on the shores. So um, credit to everybody sort of behind the scenes, organising it all, and, and of course the Australian and New Zealand um, public and everyone who's travelled um, across the globe as well just to be here. Um, it really is, um, so far, truly really been a, a pretty good spectacle.
0: I think it's been great, Jenna, and I think it, it it just proves the point that when you take these things off the beaten track a little bit, you get a better outcome, don't you? It means more to them. It means more to the people. You get more scope to grow your code and uh, and people will turn up because it's a big event uh, that otherwise might get lost in a in a busier uh, place like a uh, you know New York or somewhere around that where it would be just uh, just another event. So fantastic so far. We need the hosts. To do well, and um, and New Zealand got tipped over in their second game.
2: They did, unfortunately. It was it was a great game. It was a tough one as well, but obviously really happy as well for the Philippines. There's a couple of um, A League women players in that squad as well, um, and getting their first win ever for their country such a great moment for them. Um, and New Zealand already, you know, already surprised um, everyone and, and surpassed expectations by coming out. Um, off the start mark, and, and with a win against um, Norway, which they certainly would have been wouldn't have been favoured to do. So, um, both both countries obviously so far um, doing their nations proud, and and just great to see sort of everyone's support. As just mentioned before, you know, like Tuesday afternoon in Melbourne, I think it was twelve o'clock on a school day, twenty five thousand um, there to watch um, the Colombians, which we just heard on the highlights. So um, really just amazing to see everyone get around it, really.
0: So massive game for Australia tomorrow. We play Nigeria in Brisbane. We're still without Sam Kerr. I get the feeling, Jenna, that this is almost the key match for the Aussies. They get the win here and they can pretty much wait until Sam Kerr is right until she resumes playing. If they get tipped over, then they have to start thinking about, you know, what's on the line. Are they going to get through to the knockout rounds? And then it becomes a different scenario. So just how big is this game for Australia?
2: Oh, yeah, it's, it's massive. As you said, we need points from it um, regardless. Um, you know, a loss will set us back and make it really difficult uh, when we come up against Canada and, and we would have to get the three points. So um, absolutely, we'll take three um, this game against Nigeria and um, you know, worst case scenario, it's a draw, um, and we take one point. That still leads us into a good position to finishing first or second. Um, but a loss certainly won't help the cause. But um, look, the squad has got the depth, and, and although Sam Kerr is the main headline, and we all want to see her out there play, the pressure is on her every time we talk about her and and her recovering back from that injury. And and we all wish her the best and hope that we do get to see her this tournament. But the squad does have um, depth as well that, that they're just going to have to rely on. And um, that's, that's football and, and that's what happens at, at, at this level when you do have uh, injuries and stuff like that. But um, the players that are in this squad should hopefully be able to come in and, and do the job. And, and as you said, when when we're playing Canada or even hopefully out of the group stage, we, we hopefully will be able to see our star. But um, yeah, just for now it's, it's more so let's focus on those girls and, and try and get them over the line and, And um, because this is a hugely important tournament to to be very successful at. So
0: what did you make of them in their first game against Ireland? They looked a bit nervy. How did you see them?
2: Yeah, I I agree. I I thought that they started a bit nervy, but I also thought that um, a lot of teams have started quite nervous in their opening games. Um, So... I don't think it was um, specifically just them. I think I think that once they sort of settled, they sort of moved the ball around nicely. But Ireland did show that they've got some strength, and but the, but the Tilly's just held on sort of at the end, and, and Mackenzie Arnold came up with some really good saves to keep um, the three points here at home. Um, so I think they'll just have to tighten up on a few things, probably just calm, calmness and composure on the ball a little bit and, and move the ball around just that little bit sharper as well like and a little bit quicker to move it around. And um, and I think in that final third, just those final passes and, and decision-making, I think, just could be a little bit more clinical. But, um, yeah, as you said, a little bit nervy. Hopefully, as we go into this Nigerian game, it'll be um, a, a different story and um, they'll sort of know what to expect now and, and hopefully be able to handle um, some of their firepower and pace up front.
0: Nigeria were a little bit better than expected in their game against Canada. Would that be fair to say? Are they, did they pose a, a possibly a bigger threat than we might have thought pre-tournament?
2: Absolutely. I think it's one of it's it's Nigeria and a couple of others, um, including some of the newcomers that have um, outshone expectation. They did really well against Canada. Um, they defensively were a really strong unit. Um, to hold them to zero zero um, in their opening game is also an incredible defensive feat. So um, they've certainly got strengths in um, up the back and then up the front as well.
0: Now we do have another absolute top-notch world-class player, of course, in Caitlin Ford. But I, I, I'm I'm thinking, without knowing a hell of a lot, um, <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a five-minute expert here. But I'm thinking it's really important that Mary Fowler um, poses a greater danger in this game than she did in Game One. That that will enable. Caitlin Ford, more room and space to go about what she does. If opposition teams are uh, able to knuckle down on her and she is the only major threat, it's going to make it a lot tougher. So big game for Mary Fowler, I'd imagine.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think she's she's got um, youth experience, if that makes sense. Just like that um, involved in, in the World Cup last time around in 2019 as a 19-year-old. Didn't see a minute, but soaked up every uh, second of that experience in tournament, uh, being just in, being in and around the girls. She just needs to use that now to come onto the park and, as you said, just bring other people into the game a bit more. She's got the world-class quality for such a young age and um, we saw that against France with just a, a beautiful touch. This was in a warm-up game prior to the tournament, by the way. Um, just a beautiful touch to receive in the middle, in between three defenders and, and calmly Slots the ball in front of 50,000 at, um, at Marlowe Stadium. So um, she has experience and, and composure beyond her years, and, and we're going to definitely rely on that. And as you mentioned before as well, Kate Ford, she's uh, playing her best football there at Arsenal in England, and I think that she certainly has the class and capabilities to provide, mainly on the wings there for Australia, um, get the ball into the box and hopefully we can have the likes of Mary Fowler coming in and finishing them off.
0: She does have great touch, Mary Fowler, doesn't she? And and you could see that with uh, her moments in that game against Ireland. It's just a matter of um, getting a bit more threatening at times to to make sure that there is. Um, they have to focus on her a fair bit.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think um, she might be the key, but um, luckily for us we have a lot of um, great quality throughout the park. We've seen Katrina Gorey as well lighting up her um, career as well in the last couple of years and doing really well so she's going to be provider as well for the provider um, and uh, obviously our, our defensive line was, was a decently compact unit actually last game as well so um, I can't see too many changes maybe maybe if um, Alana Kennedy doesn't pull up after her first 90 minutes in, in a few months if she's not pulling up too well which we did a couple of uh, social media that she was training by herself um, the last couple of days. So if she doesn't pull up well, we probably will see Claire Polkinghorn slot al- alongside um, her namesake Claire Hunt um, into the back line there um, for the Tillies. So I can't see um, Mackenzie Arnold um, getting moved out after her really solid performance as well.
0: Yeah, no, she was terrific, particularly in the di- in the dying stages of that game. Who has impressed you most out of all the teams mm-hmm. that we've seen play one game so far, Jenna?
2: Um, I think it's, it's a tight one because a lot have impressed me, but a lot have also disappointed expectations um, so far. But Netherlands and Germany, I really liked how they both came out and, and played their football. Netherlands, I fear that they just may miss their star striker, Vivian Miedema, um later. However, the way that they moved all around um, in their 1-0 win was, was really great. It was smooth. It was, it was um, very just concise as well and planned out. Um, They showed class above their opponents and they were just um, just calm on the ball and and shifting it from side to side just to find a gap to, to then go through. So I would definitely say Netherlands and Germany, especially are the ones to look out for. But as we also saw the other night when Brazil played Panama, they've got the flair and the creativity, don't they? They've got just players who look like they're um, just playing straight from the streets of Brazil here um, on the Australian shore. So they were really impressive as well. But I also fear that against better teams, their tricks and flicks won't work. And um, we'll, we'll just wait and see. I can't wait for um, a couple of um, two big, strong nations to come up against each other and test sort of test where we're at because some of these teams have played the weaker teams, um, as we saw Germany winning 6-0 um so uh the latest stages of the tournament is going to be really great as well
0: what's your mail on how bad sam curse is?
2: um it's hard to say as everybody's sort of thinking i think if it's a tear a complete tear she won't see a minute of this tournament um i think if it's a mild strain she'll probably miss two to three um and anywhere in between is is anywhere in between so um, yeah, we just have to cross our fingers and hope that the SM team and the media guys are doing everything they can, which they absolutely will be, uh, to get her back on the park.
0: Jenna, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Have fun calling the tournament. It's going to be great. I think it's going to have a huge impact on the code in Australia um, and uh, look forward to seeing it unfold.
2: I do, awesome. Thanks so much.
0: Jenna McCormack, SEN commentator, of course, former soccer star as well. We'll take a break and be back with more after the break.
1: Yeah, I was across those comments from Darren. um, They were most interesting. Um, What I would say is that leadership takes on all different shapes and and, forms. If we're living and dying in the world of tactics only, um, then, yeah, I think it's fair and reasonable to critique some of the execution and and tactics that we we implemented, Um, but to go as far as suggesting that the captain resign post-series I think is a bit far-fetched and uh, there's opinions that we respect and there's, there's opinions that we don't.
0: That is Australian cricket coach Andrew McDonald talking about the view that maybe Pat Cummins should step down as captain at the end of the series. That it probably is... A little bit extreme, but he would probably want to uh, get his fields and his bowls a little bit better organised than he did uh, for long periods of time during that fourth test match at Old Trafford, of course. Uh, We're going to take a break. Uh, As always, we are brought to you by Izuzu Ute. You can live your own way in the Isuzu D-Max. Please see your Isuzu Ute dealer Today We're coming to you live from the Toolkit Depot studio. Don't forget to shop winter at TKD. After the break, we're going to come back and we're going to talk to cricket writer Tristan Lavalette about how he thinks the Aussies will line up for the fifth test at the Oval, which starts tomorrow night. This is Mornings with Mark Duffield on SENWA.
3: For me, I've probably left a few out there, but in saying that I've played a lot better than what I did last time, I feel like I'm in good positions, I'm looking to score. um, I've had a couple of unlucky dismissals, um, and then dismissals where I've tried to negate the swing or the seam and it's caught the outside edge of the bat. So for me, I feel like I'm in a a good space, um, contributed well, and as a batting unit, we're all about partnerships, um, and I think the partnerships that we've had in key moments of of this series so far have actually worked very well for us as a team.
0: David Warner on his form in this Ashes Test series. David, it's called getting out. When it catches the edge of the bat when you don't cope with the swing, when you don't make runs, it's called getting out, mate. I mean, please, how much how much longer are we going to rationalise this for, this for? What do you reckon, people? Give us your thoughts on the temper at bedshed text line on 0487 736 736. Call us on the open line 13 12 55. We are, as always, brought to you by Isuzu Utes, and you can live your own way in the seven-seater Isuzu MUX. But to share his thoughts on the cricket, we have ESPN quick Info and Forbes and Associated Presses. Tristan Lavalette. welcome to the show, Tristan. Morning, Dust. How's it going? Not too bad, mate. I reckon David Warner has almost matched the palms for excuses there. Um, what do you make of the the lead up to the fifth test, and uh, how do you think the Aussies will go in?
4: Well, first down, Warner. I mean, we've been talking about it for uh, about uh, since last summer, haven't we? And then he's, uh, I mean, he's. I mean. He's clearly struggling, and um, but doubling down, he's obviously going to play in the fifth test. So I don't think we're going to see any changes there. But for his own sake, it'd be a nice way to probably bow out. I think he probably needs to to uh, be realistic, and and he just can't quite do it anymore. I mean, he's still trying. I mean, he's battling out there, but it's not quite happening for him. It, it happens when you get older, and when I mean, he's averaged twenty eight in two and a half years, so. I think that says it all, really. So, unfortunately, um, he doesn't seem like he wants to to give it up and Australia don't seem to want to make a call on that. So, unfortunately, I think we're heading for maybe a bit of a a sad ending where he might uh, eventually get dropped ahead of the Australian summer. But he'll be playing uh, in the fifth test. um, And the sort of uh, dilemma for Australia is who they probably leave out for Todd Murphy, who I think they have to play after not playing with the fourth test, but at the Oval, which is a flat pitch traditionally and can favour spin, uh, he'll have to play. And there is a bit of doubt over Mitch Marsh and uh, Mitchell Stark as well over their uh, sort of fitness. So uh, that might make it a little bit easier. But if, if they play, then Cameron Green looks like he's in, the, in line to get dropped.
0: Yeah, you can drop some people for lack of form, but other people just play until to their heart's content. I mean, I just find this fascinating. I also find it fascinating that they can't disrupt their batting order uh, by dropping David Warner, but they can completely overhaul their bowling attack with talk that maybe uh, someone like Michael Nisa or even Sean Abbott might come into the team to replace tied bowlers. Um, what's your take on that? Is there any chance that Nisa and Abbott might play in this game?
4: I think uh, is probably uh, a bit of a chance, but I'd say only if uh, Stark and, and or uh, Marsh don't get up. I don't think they'll possibly uh, rest Coming uh, and Hazelwood did look pretty tight as well. But I, I think they'll probably go in um, with the, the same pace attack, but they'll probably be lucky that the last uh, couple of days were rained out in England, gave them a little bit of a, a breather there after the, the flogging they copped uh, on day uh, days two and three there. So I think they'll go in... Uh, as they were in in the fourth test. But if, uh, yeah, I'd say Cameron Green's probably the unlucky one to to get dropped. Um, And, yeah, they're not going to rejig their top order at the moment. Uh, So David Warren is safe, uh, which probably doesn't say much for some of the reserves in the team, like Marcus Harris and and Matthew Renshaw, who the selectors clearly don't have much faith in, uh, let alone Cameron Bancroft, who was the... Leading one scorer last Shield summer, as we've discussed previously. So, um, look, Warner's got one last chance. You'll think um, so. He's never made a hundred in the in the UK, so this might finally be his uh, opportunity. But I, I, doubt it.
0: Yeah, no, I tend to agree. With you. I also think, um, Tristan, that if um, if Mitch Marsh can't bowl, Cameron Green has to play, doesn't he? Our other bowlers are tired. Um, we need. We certainly need Todd Murphy, and you're absolutely right there. We always our formula for success involves having a spinner in the team, and and that's how important Nathan Lyon has been for so long now. But but surely, if Mitch Marsh can't bowl, Cameron Green has to play.
4: Yeah, I think so. But Andrew McDonald said that uh, the number six would be who will have best batter, and at the moment it's, it's Mitchell Marsh. But yeah, you'd think with. Australia's uh, bowlers looking pretty tired, especially Pat Cummins. I mean, he looked absolutely exhausted. He's going to be playing his sixth test in about seven weeks. Add in the captaincy, never seen him look so ragged with the ball, really, as he did in, in that third, te- uh, third day of the, the last test. So uh, he's he's really uh, running on fumes. Hazlewood, we know, is a bit of a injury risk. Um, Mitchell Starc uh, might looks a bit sore as well. So yeah, I mean, Cameron Green, I think, had bowled, Fairly well. At times he sort of struggled more with bat, but he—I've um, got a feeling they'll, they'll probably go with Mitchell Marsh, though, um, given what he's he's provided. Um, although the selectors are loath to drop Green, given uh, I guess he's the sort of the future of the team. Um, but uh, I suspect Green's probably going to the casualty.
0: That's amazing. I mean, it really is. You know, you've got a geriatric who plays with no form and a, and a young up-and-coming superstar who will get dropped um, just for, for team balance, when really team balance says he should play. Um, tell us about Pat Cummins' captaincy. There, obviously, some feedback that people saying he should step down after the tour. Um, he lost his way in that fourth test, didn't he?
4: Sure did. I mean, the, the tactics were pretty strange, just bowling short and basically playing England's strengths. I mean, they love uh, they love the, the short ball, they love attacking, and and that's what they were. Uh, They'll sort of spoonfed really on that third day. I mean, never seen Australia. It's been a long time since Australia looked just clueless and um, shambolic out there. They'll pretty much the. Cricket equivalent of the West Coast Eagles right now, so um, they were <laughs>
0: oh, uh,
5: whack.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, they were. Uh, um, apart from a couple of times after uh, the, the sandpaper scandal, it's probably been ten years since Australia looked just completely out of sync and uh, ragged, um, and just completely out of ideas. And they just kept reverting back to bowling short, bowling straight. And it was going the distance pretty much from uh, Crawley and, and Best. They were loving it. And I think England actually probably got carried away with it of relishing um, putting the foot into Australia that they forgot to declare. And ultimately, I think it probably might have cost them a chance of victory because they should have declared a lot earlier, uh, knowing. The rain was around, so. Man, I think, um, I, I think yeah, you're it's...
0: getting it wrong, Tristan. I, I think England obviously won. I've, I've listened to all the commentary coming out of England <laughs> um, throughout this Test series. I'm, I, I mean, I know what the scoreboard says, but from, from what I can tell, judging from what they're saying, they, they've actually won. They've actually won all four Tests. Yeah, I think it's four zero, isn't
4: it? So, it's a chance <laughs> for uh, England uh, a whitewashing in the Test, but. No, it's been a very strange series. I mean, Australia have at times... It's been all about England. I mean, the whole series has been about baseball. That's been the narrative, the compelling part of it. I thought the first couple of tests, England uh, were pretty reckless, and that's where Australia capitalised, and I think Australia played those clutch moments really well. But the last couple of tests, I think England have straddled that balance a lot better. The game plan's been, I think... um, much more spot on than it was earlier in the series. I think they probably drank their own bathwater to start the series with all the hype going on with, with baseball. And I think uh, that showed with, with that first day, the declaration from Ben Stokes, a bit of hubris in that, I think. So, uh, but, but since uh, since Lords, I think England have found the right balance. And at the moment, uh, it, it's really thrilling to watch, really. So... Uh, just from a, a neutral point of view, I think maybe a little bit of a shame that the fifth test isn't up for grabs. It would have been an uh, incredible um, week in in the UK, where cricket can fall a little bit under the radar. It's not quite as popular as here in Australia. So, um, but yeah, it, it's been a, a very interesting series. So I think Australia are running on fumes, but I think can they give one last effort and win? Actually, win the series outright. I don't think they'll be satisfied. At, just been
0: 2-2 like four years ago. No, I certainly won't be. I think there's a moral victory to be had here by one of the two teams. I think if, if England win and get back to 2-2, they will feel like they had the better of the 2-2. And I think if Australia wins and it gets it to 3-1, it settles all argument. Interesting uh, text coming through on the temperate bedshed text line from JJ in Geraldton. He says, I hope we get smashed just so it hurts England more. Uh, JJ, as as I just said, I I think there's a bit on this one. And it's very much a live test, isn't it? Even though we've reclaimed the ashes.
4: It is because... You just know if it's two-two, England will claim um, they won the series, basically, given what happened uh, in the in the fourth test and even some of the even earlier in the series was very tight. So, if England were to win and if they won convincingly, I think they'll certainly claim the the victory, really. But if Australia can win three-one, I mean that's a pretty comprehensive win, and I don't think England could surely they couldn't sugarcoat that type of uh scoreline but they might but it's uh 3-1's pretty convincing so there is rain around though in London uh so who knows what could happen it might uh it could affect the the match again but yeah I think there's a lot riding on this it's not quite like four years ago where Australia basically had uh partied hard after winning uh the fourth test and England were able to salvage a 2-2 result, but I think Australia were fairly happy to just retain the ashes, and it came shortly after the sandpaper scandal, so uh, it was a little bit of a different situation back then, but I think right now, being the number one test team in the world, the world test champions, I think they'll be disappointed if they can't uh, win this series, and it's going to be the last uh, test series for a number of the, the players as well, so it's a final opportunity to to win the UK.
0: Yep, I agree with that. And I think um, if they need to freshen up a little bit, they should freshen up, but they should also maintain the structure that has been their winning formula. Another good text coming through on the temper at bedshed text line from Murray in Cottesloe. He says, Duff, as Muhammad Ali said, if you want to be the champ, you have to whoop the champ. So it's, uh, that is what goes on the line at the Oval. Who's going to come out of this series better in the long term, do you think, Tristan? Is it going to be us or them?
4: Well, both teams are fairly ageing. I think the most fascinating thing is, will this, uh, will baseball, I guess, last? I mean, is it just a bit of a fleeting, a bit of a fad for now? Or can they actually uh, continue playing this brand of cricket over the long distance? I mean, concern for England is, I mean, Ben Stokes is such a force of nature with the bat and his captaincy. But, I mean, he's he's getting older, His, his body's, struggling. So you feel without him, if he sort of stops playing the next couple of years, um, maybe it sort of fizzles away. Um, And Australia, we know they're also a bit of an aging team. Um, They'll go through a bit of a transition, you'll think, unless they keep just picking the likes of Warner for forever. Um, They probably will transition this summer. Um, But I still think Australia's got some pretty good pace stocks. Um, If you look around the, the Shield Um, as well. So that's been at the core of the success of the team for a number of years. So as long as you've, I think, got a good attack, uh, you should be in in, in good stead. But I think the next Ashes in Australia should be a lot more interesting than we've seen uh, in previous contests because I think England, I think quite clearly are um, building something that feels like it could be sustainable. Uh, We'll see. But I think uh, at the moment, the Ashes are in pretty good, pretty good nick, and we haven't said that for, uh, for a while in terms of the Ashes in Australia. It's been very one-sided for some time.
0: Yeah, it's, it's definitely... How will Blazball go in Australia, do you think? Does it translate to Australian conditions, or will there be too much bounce here for it to work?
4: I think it, it could be, because England seem to... Um, as I said earlier, they'd they like the pace and the ball, and obviously it's another... Challenge coming to Australia compared compared to to England, the, the pitch is a little bit slower but um, and flatter. Uh, but they do tend to like playing that really aggressive, free-willing style. The short-pitch bowling, they they really can attack. Um, That's been their uh, sort of basis, uh, blueprint, success in the shorter formats, which they dominate. So I think they might, and but I think it could really depend on their attack with if Mark Wood has just been such a a difference maker since he's come into the side, if he can uh, be a reliable option and his body can hold up and they've got Joffre Archer who hasn't played for some time. Um, He's unfortunately um, had a troublesome elbow injury for for, for quite some time. But if he was able to play as well, all of a sudden England have a pretty formidable pace attack, which uh, they really need in Australia in, in the past. Anderson and Broad have been a little bit too pedestrian in Australian conditions, but you have Wood and Archer in Australia, and I think they've. Uh, I think England will be really dangerous, actually. So the next Ashes series here, I think, uh, will be a lot more competitive than we've seen in recent times.
0: So speaking of extreme pace, what's happened to the wild thing, Lance Morris? He's just disappeared off the landscape altogether over there. What's, why did they pick him to go on this tour? Not sure.
4: <laughs> he would have been very. He would have been very handy. It's been. Uh, yeah, I think uh, the selectors, if you can fold them a little bit, is they've been. They're very loyal to their experienced senior, seasoned players such as Warner, and uh, I guess you could even say the the pace attack with with Hazlewood. Um, but I think it was very pedestrian, very much the same in the fourth test that the attack apart from Stark's uh, left arm bowling so yeah Morris I think would have been a really nice option uh, with his pace and as I said earlier Mark Wood has just changed up the series with his uh, extreme pace so uh, well we won't see Morris in the the fifth test but I've got a feeling in the summer you'll see him and it could start a bit of a transition because Australia's quicks uh, are getting into their 30s so they're probably in the back end as well. So there's probably time uh, Australia after this test, it could be a little bit of a change in the guide, I think.
0: No, keep them going, mate. Davey Warner, all the geriatric (laughs) speed bowlers as well. Let's keep them them all going. We'll we'll play old man's cricket uh, out here in in the summer next year. Who wins in at the Oval, Tristan?
4: Look, I'm going to have to say England uh, reluctantly, but I do feel... don't want to agree with England, but it does feel like 2-2 is probably a bit more of a fitting scoreline. It has been extremely tight series. I feel like Australia running out of gas. They really need Pat Cummins to fire. We've seen how much Australia struggled when he's not on uh, and he hasn't been the last couple of tests. So if he can find one last, can summon one last burst of energy, then I think Australia might have a, a bit of a chance. And surely they're going to win a t- toss as well. They've lost the first four tosses, which hasn't helped. But if someone can win the toss in that first, then I think Australia uh, yeah, might be in a fairly good position. And who knows? Maybe David Warner will prove us all wrong and score a big 100 finally. Um, but no, I think the momentum certainly with England. And I think they'll be very, very determined to to win the test. So I think 2-2 will be... Sort of a fitting uh, result, although they'll be disappointing for Australia considering they two 2-0 up. And I think she really cement this era of the last couple of years, a very strong period for Australian Test cricket. I think will be a bit disappointing if it's uh, a drawn series.
0: Tristan, thanks so much. Always enjoy your insights and look forward to your coverage of the fifth Test in England.
4: Thanks, Dave. Have a good one.
0: Tristan Lavaletti writes for ESPN, Crick Info, Forbes and Associated Press. What do you think? You can have your say on the Temper at Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736. You can call us on the open line on 13 12 55. Good text from Graham in Padbury says, "Baseball in Australia might not be as effective on the bigger grounds. I think Lance Morris had a back injury pre-Ashes, which left him out. We are, as always, brought to you by Isuzu Utes. You can live your own way in the Isuzu D-Max. We'll be back with more after the break.
3: See, I am not seen anything. Been on the golf, golf course. Um, no, I don't have an announcement. Um, for me, it's about you know, trying to work hard in the nets as I did today, um, potentially come out tomorrow and, and yeah, um, if selected, go out there and play and try and win a an National Series. Johnny Farnham had one last tour and kept going. So <laughs> who knows? Might keep you guessing.
0: David Warner on his future. Look, if they leave Dave Warner in the team for long enough, he's going to make runs. Even blind squirrels find acorns every now and again. Even broken clocks are right twice a day. Uh, sooner or later, he's going to get some runs. But seriously, it's elite sport. Test cricket. The highest form of the game, 350s in 29 at-bats. Surely, surely there comes a time. Give us your thoughts. The temperate Bedshed text line is open to you, 0487 736 736. Or the open line is open to you as well. That's why we call it the open line, 13 12 Wondering what the Matildas are doing at training. Big breaking news. Mary Fowler, who alongside Sam Kerr, was their greatest scoring option heading into this World Cup. He's out of tomorrow's clash with Nigeria with a mild concussion, suffered at training. Sam Kerr tweaked her calf at training. I've got to get along and see one of these Matildas training sessions. It must be like um, bloody gladiators or something. Uh, We're going down like flies, as if, as uh, Julia Marcus said to me off air, as if soccer isn't always cursed already cursed enough in Australia. We are, as always, brought to you by Isuzu Ute. You can live your own way in the Isuzu D-Max. This is Mornings with Mark Duffield on SENWA. We'll be back after the news. Yes, we're going to need a, big, a bigger boat. We're going to need a different fixture as well. This is Duff's Deep Dive, thanks to the Toolkit uh, Depot studio. Of course, we come to you live. Uh, don't forget to shop winter at TKD. And the Deep Dive, as always, is brought to you by Isuzu Ute. You can leave your own way in the Isuzu D-Max. I've got an interesting one for you today, Julian. What is that? So there's talk around that the AFL is seriously looking at a change to the fixture, um, going away from the compromise fixture that we have at the moment where you play everyone once and six other teams twice, and before this year it was five other teams twice before we had Gather Round in Adelaide to add the extra rounds. We might move to a situation where you play everyone once, you play your crosstown rival twice, so the the second, the only team's in the main home and away fixture that, say, West Coast and Fremantle would play twice would be each other. And then the competition would split into three sections of six. So the top six would play for spots in the top four and serious flag contention. The middle six would play for the rest of the spots in the eight. Uh, So that would be basically six teams trying to claim two spots at the bottom end of the eight. And the bottom six would play for draft picks. I think this has got a lot of potential. It restores much integrity to the the competition fixture, which, it, let's face it, it, has precious little of it. Like this year, Essendon may get into finals. Essendon will play West Coast twice and North Melbourne twice. Well, that's like being given three birthdays in a season, playing those, those teams twice this year. Um, I just think it restores integrity. Um, And I also think it eliminates tanking from the equation. And I I think there is scope for the AFL to smooth out the bumps with a system like this. So the obvious bump is that the bottom six play for draft picks, right? Which means that probably the best of those bottom six and not the worst of those bottom six ends up with um, a higher draft pick than they might have otherwise been entitled to. I think you can ease the chances that are happening by the way you do home and away. So um, there's five matches to be played in that last series. The teams at the top end of that bottom six should only get two home games and have to play three away games, whereas the teams and the bottom section of that bottom six should get three home games and play two away games. So you fudge it a little bit like that. And the other thing I think they can do also is the AFL is very much an interventionist brand. It's very much an interventionist code. So I think the AFL can still intervene and give priority draft picks if they believe uh, a club really warrants it. If a club gets into a situation and is really bad, like West Coast and North Melbourne are this year, you can still work out a way to give them extra draft concessions or extra trade concessions to help them get up the ladder. I I think it's got a lot of potential. I think it's a far fairer uh, fixture, And um, I think it's a a potential way forward if the football industry can get its head around change. What do you reckon?
5: I can already hear the rebuttals to this system, which I I agree with you. I think you're looking for fairness where there is none. And until such a time that you either scale it back to you play everybody once, which is never going to happen because there's no way that the AFL is going to have reduced revenue for less games. Or you have everyone play each other twice, which would turn it into a 34-game season, and there's no way in the world that the players' association would ever go for that. So imagine,
0: imagine West Coast and North Melbourne having to go around for 34, <laughs> 34
5: <four years>. games. Oh, <laughs> uh, there'd, there'd be two, and there'd be two in 66 between them. Um, but you look at the, in the middle part of the tables where I instantly look, and so you've got the top six, you've got the middle six, you've got the bottom six. So, for example, a team that finishes. In seventh by the end of round 17, they get a kinder schedule than the team who finishes in sixth at the end of round 17. So, if you finish in sixth position, for example, say, let's for argument's sake, Western Bulldogs and Essendon, same amount of points at the end of round 17, 40 points, let's in this hypothetical scenario. So, you're going to give the Bulldogs a tougher run because they have a one percentage better percentile than Essendon. They may miss the finals, but Essendon can shoot up into you know, the top, five, top four because they get a kind of schedule. So there's the first argument I can hear. The second argument I can hear is that you know, teams at the bottom half of the six well, then you enter the tank bowl. And then you, the way you suggested it was to have the – would it be the top team in the top six get the better draft pick? Um, so the way the – in the top
0: six, basically – in that section, the top teams get the extra home game. So there's five games in that that last section of the home and away round, right? Um, so top six, the, the top three get three home games, two away games. The next three get two home games, three away games. In the middle six, the same applies. The better performed teams get the three home games and the two away games. That is their reward for finishing further up the ladder. But down the bottom where you're trying to help reward the struggling teams, it goes the other way. So they get the struggling teams, the bottom three teams get the three home games and the two away games. But I think the point that you make that is valid is that teams in that middle six, let's say you're fourth, fifth or sixth in that middle six, you may attempt to tank towards the end of the first 18 rounds in a bid to get into the bottom six and play for better draft picks. But having said that, if you look at the way the competition goes at the moment, I think that that could happen now where teams would start to try and fade towards the bottom to get the better draft pick, but they don't because there's a chance of playing finals. So the lure of playing finals becomes absolute, I think, for these teams, and they don't give up on that that hope while there is hopes. Playing finals is big in, in an AFL system. I know premierships are said to be the be-all and end-all, but they're not. For some clubs, playing finals is big. It's big for memberships the next year. It's big, you know, you get into a final and you produce a strong performance in a final. It means a lot to a lot of teams. If you look at the way the system is at the moment, it's a nonsense, really. You know, they have to stage the draw so that struggling teams get better draws they try and fudge it so that the struggling teams from last year play the struggling teams from last year early in the season to give the impression they're a little bit better than they really are um and hope that none of them you know well they hope that some of them jump up and you know jump out of the water and climb the ladder quickly but build some momentum and confidence out of all of that but but it is a nonsense at the moment and it is too compromised they still have the means to intervene on a struggling club's behalf because they just do. The The AFL makes up rules as it goes along to suit themselves. Yep. So, I, so I think they still have the option of doing that. I do think the one potential glitch in it all is something that you mentioned, that maybe some teams towards the bottom of that middle six will tank their way into the bottom six to try and get better draft picks.
5: Well, even at the top end, of, say you're at position five or six towards the end of it, and you're looking at trying to make finals, if the incentive is there to lose a couple of games, drop back to seventh or eighth, then you get a kind of run in the run to the finals, assuming that you still have the whole ladder at play here, to get a kind of run in those last five games. Then you can leapfrog a couple of teams that are in sixth place, in fifth place, because they've got a tougher schedule.
0: No, that, that, that doesn't apply, because the top six are playing for the top four. So when you go into the top six, you're not finishing any lower than sixth. So 7th seventh, yep. seventh and 8th, ninth and 10th can't leapfrog you. Basically, what you're striving for is six are playing for four. Um, and and then the ones that miss out on the top four, they finish fifth and sixth. That's that's how it works. You can't jump in. The, the way you would have to do this is that there's no way that a team can jump from its bracket of six into another bracket of six. So So we're basically, once you get to round 18 and everyone's played... Each other uh, once, and you've played your crosstown rival twice. Then basically, those the three sixes are set in stone. It's just the order within those those sixes. The other complicating thing I think would be in Victoria, um, who plays who twice. Yeah. So you've got the great Essendon Collingwood rival, which is born out of the Anzac Day clash. You've got the great Carlton. Collingwood rivalry, which is probably the most traditional of those suburban club rivalries. Where does Richmond fit in? Because Richmond has become such a giant of the competition again in the Damien Hardwick era. Where do they fit into it all? So there are complications to this, but I do think overall it is a far better system than the one we've got now. Um, Unnamed text coming through on the temper at Bed Shed text line, Does the top team in the bottom six get the number one pick or the bottom team? No, you play for the number one pick. So basically the team that wins that bottom bracket of six, they're the ones that get the number one pick. So if the AFL was needing to equalize because a team is really struggling, they would have to find other means to do it. But let's face it, the AFL does. When something needs fixing, the AFL just steps in and takes whatever means it needs to take to fix it. We call it, you know, Rule 57A, just making it up as you go along, basically. Um, It's it's a bit like that rule they have to um, punish people, conduct prejudicial to the AFL interests. I mean, that could be picking your nose in public if they decided it was prejudicial to the AFL's interests, really. You know, they they have these catch-alls, and they can still implement means to make sure that struggling clubs get the help they need and and this year you know like they may decide that north melbourne needs priority picks i don't see how they could with what north melbourne has got running around in that midfield that midfield is going to be a very very good midfield in about 2 years time
5: i just i look i think it's fairer in an unfair system i agree with you wholeheartedly on that but i just think back to the in, especially the way that it would need to be safeguarded. Once you're in your bracket of six, overall, you can't leapfrog it. But I don't know if I trust them not to go back to the old final systems they had in the early 90s, the first time they had the top six, three played four and five V6. So you can't just drop it in there without these safeguards. As long as you put these safeguards in, and like you said, to make it competitive in the bottom half of the six to play for the the top half of the, to play for the top draft pick. As long as you make sure that you're looking after, for example, I mean, in a top in a bottom six situation, West Coast is still going to be uncompetitive. As long as you are able to look after teams that were particularly bad, I think this is where we do need to go because where it is at the moment, we're going to have this argument eternally, essentially. And while West Coast are particularly bad, and this is going to be a case for a couple of years and North Melbourne have been particularly bad for about five or six years. There's going to be another Essendon that get into the finals because they have a softer schedule.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure about that because the first 18 rounds are the ones that determine the top six. So they're the ones that really, their case to play finals is set in stone. They have played everyone once, they've played one team twice and they are in the top six. So therefore they've earned the right to play finals. The next... Six are fighting for the right, for spots at the bottom end of the eight. And let's face it, like some years that is a foregone conclusion. And some years it's a logjam. Like this year it's a logjam. So why shouldn't those teams fight for those two spots? I think it, you know, it creates a really gripping sort of um, uh, scenario. So I think it's got a lot of merit. And do you know what the problem with the current system is, Julian? Yeah. This weekend, West Coast will play North Melbourne at Optus Stadium and the winner loses.
5: Mm. Big time.
0: If North Melbourne wins this game, there's no way West Coast are catching them on the ladder. So therefore, North Melbourne have lost any chance of getting to Harley Reid. If West Coast wins, they draw even with North Melbourne on points and they'll still be away off them on percentage, but they've only got a fluke another win and they are above North Melbourne and they lose access to Harley Reid. Now, how hard are you trying, Really? Now, we all hear teams don't tank. What? Do we believe in a flat earth and tooth fairies and that sort of thing? West Coast supporters might get five days of joy out of beating North Melbourne this week because of what they've been through this year. They might get 10 years of pain if they lose access to Harley Reid and he wins three Brownlow medals and two Norm Smith medals in the next decade. Yeah. So, you know, let's just apply logic here. What are you doing if you're West Coast? How hard are you trying? You might not send them out on the ground saying, whatever you do, don't win. But you're probably picking a team for, in inverted commas, experience or experimentation, trying to see what we've got, exploring our list, all these little cliches that come up at the end of the season when teams know that losing is probably better than winning. It's just blood in the youth. Blooding the youth, yes. Exploring yeah. our list. Yeah seeing what we've got, seeing how he'd go in that position, like Brady Hoff on Charlie Kernow. Well, we, I could have told you how he was going to go in that position before the ball was bounced. He was going to go not very well. We'll take a break. What do you think? You can have your say on the temper at bedshed text line. There's some uh, some good text coming through on that. That is 0487 736 736. You can call us on the open line 13 12 55. We're coming to you live from the toolkit depot studio. Don't forget to shop winter at TKD. And we are, as always, brought to you by Isuzu Utes. You can live your own way in the seven-seater Isuzu MUX. And as always, Isuzu Utes bring you Duff's Deep Dive. Back after the break.
4: (laughs) We're going to have a player strike? If we don't have resolution, yes or no, are we going to
1: have a player strike?
5: The, the clock is ticking. Well, I can't say yes or no, Andrew. The, the point
1: is, again, everyone have leaps spoken to about player it? action. Don't have know. you spoken about it? The player strike?
5: The players speak about many different things. You know, ultimately what we're saying here is
1: that there is... There's many steps along this road that we've got to take. Again, the players will determine what they're prepared to do. That's our job. We just present the options, we explain the risks, we explain how to mitigate those risks, and then they choose. I don't run a dictatorship. You know, we run a regime here that allows people to operate in a democracy. That's the whole purpose of a member-led organisation.
0: Welcome back to the Toolkit Depot studio. Don't forget to shop winter on TKD. Player strikes, that sounds pretty dramatic. Scott Sattler joins us on the show. We had a week's hiatus with Scotty last week. He was still getting over the disappointment of Queensland not sweeping the State of Origin series. Scotty, welcome.
1: <laughs> hey, Duff. How are you, mate? Yes, uh, it all seems to be going around in circles, this whole RLPA versus ARLC slash NRL... Uh, debate at the moment. Uh, no one really knows who's winning the battle, to be quite honest.
0: So tell us the key points. What are the bones of contention here, Scott?
1: <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. Now, <laughs> the the NRL are saying that they've tried to get back to the table on a number of occasions and uh, they haven't had the RLPA respond to uh, several emails and um, Peter Valandis was out of the country when all of this first dropped with the RLPA and the media boycott by the players. He's now back in the country. And I've got to say, uh, Peter Valandis is a guy that involved with New South Wales racing, is pretty used to getting what he wants. Um, but uh, the RLPA are led to believe that, um, that the NRL have said to them, you've got to take it or leave it. Simple as that. Now, the NRL are denying that. Uh, you've got, you heard that audio bit of audio there by the RLPA boss, Clint Newton, where it just seems as though you can't give one straight answer. It's, it's, it's a lot of business jargon that comes from, a, uh, you know, it comes from you know, the archives and the history of, of how to run a, run a business. But just, we just want a straight answer as a rugby league landscape and a rugby league public. What are the bones of contention at the moment? What is it that you're actually fighting over? Because everyone seems to have their own slant on things and we actually don't know what they're fighting over. and um, it's, it, get, it can get very boring and very mundane and quite confusing at times, um, but all I know is that, is that Peter Valdes came out last night in a, in a story with uh, Peter Bell from the Courier Mail, vale News Corp and, and was pretty strong in his stance, more or less saying the RLPA are trying to take money, money away from the Polynesian players and the second-tier representative rugby league players. The RLPA saying, well, that's absolutely nonsense. So we're still at a standoff.
0: Mate, as I've learned over the years, I was a general news reporter before I became a sports reporter. There are lies, damn lies, and then there's industrial relations. So it's uh, once you get into it, it gets a very murky territory. One team tells you it's black, one team tells you it's white, and you've got to find the right shade of grey in the middle. So this is basically about a new collective bargaining agreement, is it?
1: Yeah, it's been going on over 20 months now, and they've agreed to a lot of the points, but there are some points that um, that they that both parties are not agreeing on, and that's where they've got to get back to the table and try and sort it out. Now, um, I'm led to believe that there was a there was an arbitrator that was not there for a period of eight or nine months and basically just walked away from it and just said I I can't handle this anymore. Um, they want to try and bring another mediator in, an independent mediator, which I'm led to believe. If if we're reading correctly, the NRL don't believe they're at that point because now that Volantis is back in Australia, he has always been the the, um, the the central figure with any negotiations that he's always engaged in. So um, yeah, the one thing we did hear about that audio with Andrew Voss, one of our colleagues with uh, with Brecky, with Vossi uh, and Brandy, was that is that when he asked the question, have the players spoken about striking and. The RLPA can't give a definitive answer because I think they know deep down if the players strike, they don't get paid. So yeah, you know, they're, they're breaching a, the broadcasting deal. So and that's what you know majority of the money comes from two thirds of the funding. So they can't, they won't give an answer in a threat of that nature because they know if they do, they won't get paid.
0: Yeah, and you also disenfranchise yourself with you disenfranchise your fans with je- jeopardises your relationship with them. And they are really, at the end of the day, their interest in your game and their love for the game is where the money comes from, isn't it? That's the that that is the fertilizer, if you like, that 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 causes the whole thing to grow. So, yeah, fascinating, and hopefully there's a common sense resolution sooner rather than later, Scotty.
1: Well, to their credit, the RLPA have said we we don't want to we don't want to um, you know penalise the fans. We don't want to penalise the fans. So the media boycott is probably the yeah, the lettuce leaf, the lettuce leaf strike that they they needed to have to sort of send a message and fire a shot over the bow. It's 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 not you know it's it's not a be all and end all, but it's it still means that we we mean business. So you know, to their credit, they've always said we don't want to penalise the fans, and then they're not penalising the fans by the media boycott. They are for for a, a portion of the fans that do love hearing from their stars, but there are there's another section of of fans that sort of. Feel as though the players give the same answers to the same questions. Um, so, yeah, you know, they some fans are being penalised, but the NRL have always said they're not trying to penalise fans and they're doing their best not to do that. But at the end of the day, if if this goes any longer and the players do uh, decide to the boycott the, NR, the NRL's Dally M night of nights, which they did back in 2003, and my former teammate and uh, captain Craig Gower was the Dally M player of the year that year. And, to this date, has never received that medal because it's an asterisk next to it. So um, if they boycott the Dali M's, well, it's happened before, and the NRU are liable to come out and cancel it before they boycott it. So that's what happened back in 2003. I can't see them um, changing their uh, changing their routine if that's a threat.
0: And all this is uh, being played out against the backdrop of a very fascinating season. I, I went through the ladder before I uh, came on the show today. The Eels 9th, Rabbitohs 10th, Knights 11th, Sea Eagles 12th, Roosters 13th, Dolphins 14th. Are they all still in finals contention?
1: Well, they are. Um, mathematically, they are. But to be quite honest, the for and against is really going to hurt a lot of sides. I think if you get to 32 points, you'll definitely be in the eight. If you're on 30-31, to 31, you're going to be fighting on a four and against, which you don't want to do. So I, I, did, I actually went on the NRL website last night, and when you look at the ladder of the NRL website, I'm not sure whether you can do it on the AFL stuff, but you can actually do a ladder predictor. So yep. for the remaining six games, you can go through every game, what you think the scoreline uh, difference is going to be and who's going to win, and, and it basically gives you your final final table. So, you know, I, I had the Knights finishing 8th on 31 points on four and against, and Canberra finishing 7th, South finishing 6th, uh, Melbourne finishing 5th, uh, the Rabbitohs finishing 4th, and then the Warriors, the Broncos and the Bunnies. Uh, sorry, the Warriors, the Broncos and the Panthers as the minor premiers. Now, yeah, we know what happens with injuries, whatever it may be. Everyone mathematically can still make it down to a sort of Twelfth position, but yeah, you're really going to have to be clutching at stru- screws if you're down around yeah you know, those those bottom that bottom part of those sides. So uh, at the moment, we know the Warriors is the team that's really taken the, the competition by storm. They're everyone's second favourite side, and the way they're playing, they'll, they'll most likely get a home semi-final, which would be great.
0: What are you most looking forward to this weekend, mate? Which game captures your imagination?
1: Well, I'm doing the, the Broncos and, and the Roosters at the Gabba. And the reason why I'm looking forward to it is because I haven't been to the Gabba for a while, actually. I went and watched the Lions and Richmond final about four or five years ago, and uh, where Richmond absolutely lapped the Lions that night. And I haven't been back there since. Uh, and I've definitely never been there for a rugby league game, Duff. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Really looking forward to, to getting to that, that match.
0: What about uh, Cronulla versus Penrith, Nathan Cleary v. Nico Hines? How, does that uh, strike a chord with you at all? Well,
1: I just know that Nathan Cleary coming back last week, he looked like he hadn't missed a beat. And the Panthers looked like they were in third gear, to be quite honest. He has the Bulldogs. And, yeah, he's you know, he's, a, he's, a, he's a completely different kettle of fish to a lot of players. He's on another level. Nathan Cleary, the way that he thinks about the game and and how methodical he is about the game. So uh, at the moment the way that both of them are playing Nico's not playing that bad but his team isn't going that crash right at the moment but yeah, Penrith and Nathan Cleary they're they're in a a completely different universe at the moment.
0: Mate, a bit of controversy in the NRLW biting someone's received two weeks Ashley Werner has received a two week suspension for biting. What's going on there? Yeah, two
1: weeks it yeah. doesn't make sense, does it? If if, if you've been found guilty of biting, it, they should rub you out for a, an extended period of time. But I suppose what they're trying to do is, retrospectively, they don't play a full season, 27 rounds like we do in the NRL. Um, so only a you know, pretty much less than a half season for the NRLW, so hence why the, the suspensions aren't as long. Now, many will argue, but hang on a sec, no, it's... If you're biting, it doesn't matter whether you've got a half a season or full season, you should be rubbed out for an extended period of time. The evidence from the, from all reports was quite clear on the field. Uh, the player reacted straight away to the bite and complained to the referee, and the referee seemed to feel as though there was enough evidence to, to send the player off. So based on that Duff, I don't know about you or the listeners, but to me, that that seems to me to be a, a lengthy su- suspension, not too weeks. She was wearing a mouth guard. Uh, the player, Werner. Um, and many would say, well, why would you try and bite someone when you've got a mouth guard in? But, of course, your bottom teeth are exposed. And, and her argument is the player had to, had their arm around her mouth and she was finding it hard to breathe. So the only way to try and defend herself was to, to bite, to try and get the arm away. So, uh, and maybe the judiciary has looked at it that way. Maybe the match review committee and judiciary and the NRL has looked at it that way and gone, well, that's a reasonable suspension, but you still shouldn't have done it, so we'll meet you halfway either way it's um, it's an interesting
0: 182 weeks for a bite yeah it's a fascinating one it always gets our attention when there's something like uh, biting in any code we've had a few over the years in footy it uh, it, it tends to grab a few headlines um, Scotty always a pleasure to talk to you I look forward to getting your take on this weekend's fixtures next week
1: no worries. thanks Duff
0: Scotty Sattler, of course, uh, calls the NRL for SEN. Uh, Always a pleasure to have him on the show. We're getting a lot of good text coming through on the temperate bedshed text line on fixtures and uh, on on a couple of other things. We'll get to them after the break. We are, as always, brought to you by Isuzu Utes. You can live your own way in the seven-seater Isuzu D-Max. See your Isuzu Ute dealer today. Yes, welcome back to the Toolkit Depot Studio. Don't forget to shop winter at TKD. And we are, as always, brought to you by Izuzu Ute. You can live your own way in the Isuzu D Max. We've got lots of good text coming through on the Temper at Bedshed text line, some on fixtures, some on tanking. Lisa from Allenbrook said, uh, North Melbourne have some great players. No one deliberately goes out to lose, but the Eagles, if the Eagles, heaven forbid, do lose, they'll be accused of tanking. Lisa, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure anyone thinks either of these teams is much good this year. So uh, I think the winner will be uh, whoever it is. But the point being that there just is not much incentive to win when you look at the long-term ramifications. What have you got for us, Julian?
5: Yeah, i got Jonesy from Geraldton who's text through, something has to be done to try and even the comp up, and that fixture's idea is possibly it, as we can't even up the home ground advantage for the Victorian clubs. Nothing worse than when the TV puts up someone like Richmond's last six games for the season, and they're all at the MCG, except for the one away game, which is at Marvel which I'm pretty sure that's what they've got this year. Yeah, and the
0: bloody Tigers need a Melways to get to Marvel as well. They, <laughs> they, they, they act like they need visas and passports to get to Marvel. They get so upset when they get sent there. Um, yeah, very good point. Um, Graham from Padbury says, Darfur, under your system where the bottom six play for the first draft pick, neither West Coast nor North would have a hope in hell of getting Reed. There's no way they'd finish on top of that group. Until last weekend, Sydney were in the bottom six, so they'd be a chance of getting pick one the year after play playing in a grand final. Graham, you're right. It is a glitch in the system. But as I mentioned, the AFL is an interventionist organisation. They will find a way to even it up for the teams that are really struggling. It might be multiple draft picks. It might be other things. But trust me, the AFL will find a way. Julian?
5: Yeah, Sam from Rockingham has texted. What about a team like Fremantle this year who have Melbourne's draft pick as their first pick? They would try to tank to not give Melbourne a higher pick. Well, I mean, this year it hasn't quite worked out for them. Melbourne's going to get a nice little Christmas bonus, but under that system, that could potentially be a glitch.
0: No, not really, because let's face it, I mean, that pick is gone. The decision is made. Um, You know, if Fremantle wants Melbourne to have an inferior pick, then they need to start winning. Um, But but Fremantle's more concerned with their own issues, not whatever Melbourne does or doesn't get out of these things. I don't think... uh, I don't think that's a massive concern for me. What do you think? You can still get a quick one in on the temperate bedshed text line on 0487 736 736. We are, as always, brought to you by Isuzu Utes. Live your own way in the Isuzu. DMX. Yeah, welcome we'll back, back to the Toolkit to Depot the studio. Don't forget to shop winter at TKD. Lots of good text coming through on the temperate bedshed text line. Matt from Divers, Julian, says, go the other way, Duff. 34-game season. Cut quarters to 15 minutes. Plus time on expand list by four players, make it up to teams to manage their players. No buys, but players having their contracts guaranteed three weeks off a season, and the club has to manage. Play games Thursday and Thursday through to Monday. I don't really want to watch the bottom teams play 34 no. times in the
5: season. 34 game season, uh, and, and uh, shorter quarters never again. We've we've lived that experience once, never again. Uh, Graham from Padbury's put in an interesting point. The model you're talking about becomes obsolete as soon as Tasmania enters the comp as the 19th team. Have a rolling draw that crosses years. It suffers the same problems as the current system, but at least it's objective and not arbitrary.
0: Yeah, look, it would mean that one group would have to be seven, but I think there are ways around that, whether you made the bottom group seven or the middle group seven. um, If you make the middle group seven, there are... um, you know, you, you leave more teams alive in the race for the eight. I think there are ways of doing it. Um, I hear what you're saying, though. And if they go to 19, we think eventually they'll go to 20. So that is a potential glitch. There's no doubt about that.
5: There's another one that's a uh, no-name on this text, but uh, with that format, there's a chance to play the same team three times if they finish in the same six in their town rivals, i.e. West Coast and Frio.
0: So what? You know what I mean? Like, if you're the crosstown rivals, they're the big rivalry, so the more games you play, better. If Carlton versus Collingwood happens three times a year as opposed to two times a year, so what? Good thing, not bad thing, I would have thought.
5: Yeah, I don't think too many people are going to be uh, complaining if that's the case. Uh, on the way out, I'll ask you uh, this week, to either Fremantle or West Coast taste victory this weekend?
0: You know what? I'm going to, with great trepidation, tip West Coast to beat North Melbourne. I'm not sure that either team has got form to recommend it in any way, shape or form, but the game is here. North Melbourne appear to be really, really battling and West Coast have gathered a little bit at home in their past few matches. Uh, Stretch St Kilda were competitive for long periods of the game against Richmond. Uh, Fremantle in Geelong, they beat them there last year, but they aren't going anywhere near as well as they were going last year. And the Cats... Uh, building up a fair head of steam, I think, in the run of the finals. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Julian, thanks for all your help, mate, uh, doing the show this week. We'll be back on Monday to run the ruler over the weekend of sport on mornings with Mark Duffield on SENWA. Thanks for your time this morning.